0: Sound Opinions is supported by Goose Island, pairing beer and music since 1988. Goose Island Beer Company, Chicago, Illinois. Listen critically, enjoy responsibly.
1: Good music is what we want to hear. What do you mean, good music? It's what we dance to, what our children will dance to. And if you don't want to play it, then take your records and go home.
0: You have a band, good or bad? It's a great band, it's a bad band, it's like pizza, baby, it's good no matter what, there's music in the air! Being a good drummer is all about serving the song, and perhaps nobody has served more hit songs than Hal Blaine of The Wrecking Crew. I'm Jim DeRogatis. And I'm Greg Kott. Hal Blaine talks about recording with Phil Spector,
1: Brian Wilson, Elvis Presley, and more. Plus, we review a new album from up-and-coming
0: Australian artist Courtney Barnett. That's all coming up on Sound Opinions. This is Sound Opinions, and Greg, uh, I, I know you agree. One of the benefits of hosting this show is occasionally we get to chat with someone who is a real hero of ours, as someone who has played the drums since age 13 and, and always loved the work of Hal Blaine, a name many people probably don't even know. I was thrilled to get him on the show. Now I only have two left to go. We've we got to land Ringo Starr someday. We really <laughs> have to. You know, As a drummer, I like the simple, less is more approach and we have to land Charlie Watts, although I did get to have tea with him when I briefly worked at Rolling Stone.
1: Yes, indeed, Jim, uh, Ringo Starr and Charlie Watts, you have been put on notice. We're gonna talk to <laughs> Hal Blaine later on in the show, but first we've got some music news.
2: That is why Title is dedicated to cultivating a, sa- a sound business enterprise that promotes the health and sustainability of our art and our industry around the world. as we believe that it is in everyone's interest fans, artists, and the industry as a whole to preserve the value of music and to ensure a healthy and robust industry for years to come. Because we believe that Frederick Nietzsche couldn't have been more right when he said, without music, life would be a mistake.
1: That is Alicia Keys introducing the new Jay-Z-owned streaming service called Tidal. Jim, we haven't heard Nietzsche invoke too much, especially in regards to streaming <laughs> services lately. Not, but, not by
0: pop stars. Yes, though.
1: Alicia Keys, but she was one of the cavalcade of stars that Jay-Z paraded out there to trumpet the arrival of his new streaming service. There was Kanye West on that stage, Nicki Minaj, Beyonce, Rihanna, Madonna,
0: Daft Punk in their robot outfits. That press conference was one of the strangest spectacles I ever have witnessed. It really was. And
1: and Jay-Z trotted all of these all-star performers out there as quote-unquote partners in his new venture, in his new streaming venture, the, the latest rival to arrive in contention with Spotify to rule the streaming world you know jay-z only a few weeks ago it seemed purchased the swedish tech company Aspiro for 56 million dollars and he's already got this new streaming service title up and running it is the first ever quote-unquote artist-owned global music and entertainment platform according to alicia keys and it offers two pricing tiers 9.99 a month and nineteen ninety-nine a month for lossless high fidelity sound quality. There is no free streaming tier, unlike Spotify which apparently is why a lot of these artists are gravitating toward this service. In other words, there is no free, you have to pay to get on, and the artist presumably will get more revenue as a result of this.
0: Although I found it curious that in the reams that have already been written about this, title is not saying what the royalty rate for artists will be. Jay-Z was talking about transparency
1: in a Billboard interview, but he really wasn't very transparent about what the actual numbers are going to be.
0: But all those people on stage did sign a declaration <laughs> Of independence, <laughs> no, nobody saw this. We don't know what it actually said.
1: But. Yeah, it was it was it was a fascinating display of here we are. I think actions speak louder than words, Jim. In in this case, because all of these artists, they're supposedly partners in this venture with Jay Z, but what are they really offering? this platform now rihanna did offer an exclusive track be better have my money but that track was actually available online four days earlier taylor swift who's supposedly the big get her catalog is available But she has not gone all in. Her 1989 album, she's still withholding that. It's Uh, not available on Spotify
0: or any streaming service. It's not available on Tidal. And she famously declared war on Spotify a couple of months ago.
1: Yeah, so you're wondering how all in are these artists with the new Jay-Z venture? And in regards to this big rollout, I give you two words. Ghost Tunes. Remember Garth Brooks' big rollout of a streaming service a few months ago? Everybody was talking about it for a few days, maybe a few weeks. Is anybody talking about
0: it now? I think you have to put your Google glasses on in order to see Ghost Tunes. (laughs)
1: Yes, festival season is upon us. That is Paul McCartney. He is the big headliner at the uh, Lollapalooza this year in Grand Park in Chicago. McCartney and Metallica at the top of the bill. But there are some younger acts as well. Sam Smith is on the bill. Tame Impala, ASAP Rocky. So they do have a diverse bill. But it is topped by these veteran oldies acts, which I don't think would have ever happened in the original incarnation of Lollapalooza in the 90s. Now that it is a destination festival in Chicago, it has changed character considerably. Well,
0: whether you want to go to Lollapalooza or, for that matter, Coachella or many other festivals this summer, Greg, one thing you can't bring is your selfie stick. I know you're very fond of these so that you can capture the moment. Coachella and Lollapalooza are both banning Those sticks, you put your cell phone on the end, you get a picture of yourself, right? And many other festivals are expected to follow suit. Why? They get in people's way, and they're potentially dangerous. I love a quote I saw from a spokesperson of uh, London's Wembley Arena. He said, the sticks might mean you were refused entry into the venue. So our advice is don't bring them and stick with the tried and tested use of your arm. (laughs)
2: All that's true you got me, baby, I got you, baby, I got you, babe.
0: I got you, babe. You're listening to Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis. I'm here with Greg Cott, and that is 1965's I Got You, Babe. The song, of course, is credited to Sonny and Cher, but that drumbeat is all Hal Blaine. He may not be a household name, but if rock and roll is all about the beat, then the 86-year-old drummer is arguably one of the biggest rock stars alive today. It's his stamp you hear on some of the great records of the 1960s and early 70s. He recorded with Elvis Presley. Wise men say,
3: only fools rise. But I can't help falling
2: in love
0: with you. The Mamas and the Papas, Sam Cook. I love a
2: Saturday night. That-
0: Simon and Garfunkel, The Carpenters.
2: On the day that you were born, the angels got together and decided to create a dream come true. So they sprinkled moon dust in your hair, golden starlight in your eyes of blue.
0: Jan and Dean, even Barbara Streisand, 38, Chart topping singles to be exact, and over 5,000 songs in total. So, Greg, if we're comparing successful outputs, that really makes him his only rival is the Beatles. That's amazing. And now we're familiar
1: with this idea of session musicians playing on recordings by other artists. But back in the day, these guys were floating under the radar in a lot of ways. I mean, there was a big revelation when it was found out that these high-caliber acts during the 60s didn't all play on their own songs. I mean, you'd expect that the monkeys didn't play on their own songs, but the Beach Boys, you know, the birds, you know, many of their songs were in fact recorded by Hal Blaine and the Wrecking Crew, this loose organization of California studio players who whose members included some big names, later on big names anyway, Glenn Campbell, Leon Russell, Earl Palmer, a lot more. There was an unspoken pact to keep their hit-making machine kind of a secret. They were never credited on, on these albums, but as time goes on, they've gotten their due. Now, Hal Blaine was inducted in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 2000, and last month saw the release of The Wrecking Crew, a new documentary directed by Danny Tedesco, son of crew guitarist Tommy Tedesco. We're happy to have Hal with us now to talk about some of those legendary recordings, not to mention famous personalities. Hal Blaine, welcome to Sound Opinions. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. Brian Wilson pays you the ultimate compliment. Uh, Brian Wilson, the leader of the Beach Boys, made a lot of records with you guys, and he says in the movie, Hal was the leader of the wrecking crew. How did you feel when you heard Brian say those words, Well, I don't know that I felt like a leader, but I know that I was one of
3: the few people that everyone paid attention to. And when I said, come on, fellas, we're having fun, but it's time to roll. You know, this is a matter of bottom lines. And even though Capitol Records was paying for everything in those days, uh, let's not abuse that. So when we were laughing and having fun, Part of my, my whole persona, as it were, was comedy, and I loved comedy. I had, had formerly worked with people like Buddy Hackett and, and, and Don Rickles and all these great comedians. There was a, a time when I would tell a joke if things got a little bit sticky, and perhaps it looked to me like, well, I'll tell you the story. One time we are doing a Mamas and a Papas, and it's about 4 o'clock in the morning, and we're exhausted. Been recording all day with various people, and we're now we're doing, we're doing John Phillips and Michelle and and the Mamas and Papas, Mama Cass mm. and Denny Doherty, and a great group and wonderful people. Every
2: other day, every other day, every other day, every other day of the week is fine, yeah. But whenever Monday comes.
3: Unfortunately, John E.A. Phillips kept messing up what he was doing. And I kept saying, John, we'll do it any way you want. But I always wrote a drum part. So I always knew where I was in the material we were doing. And John kept messing up. Every time we'd get to a particular place, he would do it differently, adding a bar, dropping a couple of bars. I'd say, John... (laughs) I don't want to bug you. You know, it's getting late. You're doing it one way, one one moment, and the next moment you're doing it another way. And and we have to know, as the band out here, we have to know exactly how you're going to do it. And, and John was prone to his crown royal or regal, whatever they called it. <laughs> and he was like, well, just do it. Just do it. And all of a sudden, uh, he makes another horrible mistake. And then he looks at me and he says, okay, Blaine, that was you that time. That wasn't me. And I came across the drums. I was ready to choke the in. God bless him. I mean, may he rest in peace. But unfortunately, it's hard to, to sometimes to deal with people like that. And to, the proof of that pudding is that when he was diagnosed with sclerosis of the liver, he just went and had a new liver put in. He was still drinking like he always did. Uh-huh. And, of course, and then unfortunately passed away.
0: But that was really the only time I ever kind of lost it, as it were. So a cool demeanor, a sense of humor, of course incredible musical chops that's how you kind of wind up as as one of the centers of this wrecking crew now one of the things that's fascinating to me hal is you know we know the Stax volt band we know the motown band and they were more or less set those groups no one in the film can even agree about how many members of this group of studio musicians there were (laughs) 12 15 people
4: maybe what 20 of
0: us 30
3: maybe? There was probably 20 musicians or maybe a few more, counting the string players, of course, that were doing all the sessions. Truth of the matter is, we were nightclub guys. We were working in nightclubs. Glenn Campbell on guitar, Leon Russell on piano, Lyle Ritz, Ray Pullman. There were about six or seven of us, the nuclei or the nucleus of our little Wrecking Crew. And the way the Wrecking Crew name came about was that in those days there were song pluggers, and they would come to you and say, I have a song for Andy Williams. I'm going to try and get a singer that sounds like Andy Williams, and we want to present it to CBS, Columbia. And hopefully Andy will record this song. And it was not Cole, it was everybody. And, of course, we happened to be the young guys playing this new genre what they that they called rock and roll. And I was personally working for Walt Disney. I was working as an actor. I would hear, sometimes they would pre-record certain, certain music, and I would hear these older, established guys that have been doing all the ep- epic MGM and Warner Brothers films. And here we are at the end of the 50s, And these elderly gentlemen, they were always in the three-piece suits Mm. or blue blazers, very, very neat and and dapper. And here we were, a bunch of kids that were brought in. were wearing Levi's, T-shirts like I'm wearing today. Mm. A lot of times the older established guys, the blue blazers, I could hear them saying, these kids are going to wreck the business. Mm. And I at one point had a personal secretary who happened to own the answering service for all the musicians? Dial in to the, the answering service, say his name, and on the other end, an operator would say, "No, no calls now," or they'd say, "You have a six o'clock appointment at so and so and so." Instead of giving everybody's names again, mm. I would just say, "Sweetheart, we need the wrecking crew for a certain date." <laughs> We had so many hits going. We were famous for gold records and, and platinum records in those days. And you originally you did receive a gold record. It wasn't solid gold. It was an old mother of some kind of a record that they used to
0: press <laughs> yeah. from. There's a heartbreaking scene in the in the film, Hal. You you wind up losing everything at one point. Combination of things, the marriage gone wrong and the business right. shifting. The yacht The mansion and all the gold records. All the gold (laughs) records, man.
3: In my particular case, I bought an incredible mansion in Hollywood. I had a magnificent yacht. I had a gorgeous Rolls-Royce. But out of nowhere, I had a wife who all of a sudden declared I want a divorce. What? What are you talking about? I just went for a sandwich in it. It's like impossible to believe. And in order for her to get paid off, You sell everything you own. I had 170-something gold records, had to sell them all.
1: We'll talk more with Wrecking Crew drummer Hal Blaine in just a minute here on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. Later, we're going to review South by Southwest breakout artist Courtney Barnett, and I add a song I can't live without to the Desert Island Jukebox. Stay tuned. Back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Kot with Jim DeRogatis, and we're talking with Hal Blaine, the great drummer for the Wrecking Crew. He's featured in a new documentary of the same name, directed by Denny Tedesco, the son of fellow
0: crew member Tommy. Greg, that song, "The Ronettes," "Be My Baby," and the drum beat in particular is one of those that I associate most with Hal Blaine. You've got Ronnie Spector's incredible voice, Phil Spector's famous wall of sound production, but without those drums, there is no hit. I think one of the things you can say about Hal Blaine's drumming is those parts are truly memorable. You can sing his drum parts. Think about how many people you can say that about in rock and roll. Yeah, Hal, I'd love to hear more about recording
1: that song. That drum beat's been copied so many times. I mean, how did that come together? It seemed like the Wrecking Crew was playing a lot of riffs and fills uh, and and instrumentation that were not part of the original song, but you brought those things into those songs to make them hits.
3: Well, I will tell you, in all honesty, ego-wise, after a while, you really get good at your trade. You become a great faker. F-A-K-E-R. And I found through the years, even before Phil, of course, if you make a mistake, if you do it every eight bars, (laughs) it becomes a part of the song. Sometimes it becomes the hook of the song. In this case... It's possible that we were, Phil Spector used to rehearse it. I can remember to this moment, Phil saying, here we go, here we go, 69, here we go, let's go. Larry, roll it, you know. I mean, we were doing take after take after take
1: until we were exhausted. Did you feel like uh, Be My Baby was, uh, oh, was a mistake? Yes, oh, mistake, or, or, you know, in, in terms of that drum part that you played on it? I had a hunch. I just
3: have a hunch. I don't know that it was a written-out part by Jack Nietzsche, the arranger in those days. A lot of the arrangements were self-produced, and we would make our own notes on a, on a chord chart. Well, it's possible I was. we were rehearsing with boom, chicka-boom, chick-boom, chicka-boom, chick. Be my, be my, be my little baby. And it's possible that when we started rolling, yeah, that I went for the two, and I dropped the stick or something. Mm-hmm. And being the faker that I was, I played it on four.
0: Hold it one more time, I'm only make it dum, 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 dum,
2: dum, One, two, three.
3: Phil loved it. Everybody said it's great. Leave that in. <laughs> Phil Spector was one of the few people that I know behind the glass, so to speak, that he always had a little quarter-inch, seven-and-a-half tape playing. You know, when musicians first walk in and sit down to, to do a recording session, and they would walk into the studio and take their instrument out, and they would start... They were playing crazy. And Phil would say, wait a minute, hold it, what's, what's that lick you're doing? He said, I don't know, that's just what I do. <laughs> Phil would had an extra tape machine going that he would always have running. It was brilliant on his part. And he c- could have the engineer roll back, do a rewind, and hear what the guy was playing. That's what I want to hear on this first song or whatever. Mm-hmm. He was a brilliant genius, I guess you might say. And he paid us wonderful money, and he was terrific to us, and everything we touched with Phil Spector became a giant hit, and he owned the record company. There were very few producers that really owned the record companies. It was an amazing time because everybody was coming to Hollywood, especially in the music business, including the great Brian Wilson and so many others. They wanted to see what this magic fairy dust was that Phil was putting... In this, on these records, and they were all number one hits, and we knew that he was a little kooky. Unfortunately, he went through this horrible murder situation, and to this day, I believe he's he's innocent of murder, but unfortunately, it was his gun that murdered this woman or killed her, accidentally. Anyway, I won't get into all of that, but Phil, of course, is behind bars.
0: Let's turn to uh, 1966 and the Beach Boys' masterpiece, Pet Sounds. Critics and fans have always thought there's something magical about that recording. Uh, could you feel it at the time? Because sure. it seemed like with Pet Sounds and good vibrations all recorded in 1966, Brian Wilson was going someplace no one had ever been.
3: Absolutely. You actually, actually, you just said it all. Because Brian, like any other youngster, was growing and he was becoming a little bit sophisticated and exposed to what else was going on in the world. It's it's not only the surf world or the hot rod world of the some of those genres that when we were doing everybody's records, but Brian was hearing, you know, Brian was deaf in one ear, and I mean that not as an insult. He had an amazing hearing, but somehow there had been an accident and he lost his hearing as a youngster. And he had to hear whatever we were doing. And, uh, you know, our sessions were three-hour sessions. Brian would call me and say, I want to do a session on Thursday at 2 o'clock. I'd say, okay, Brian, how many guys? Just the wrecking crew, that's all. And Brian would say, Hal, just give me a good backbeat. And Brian was working from his brain. He had chord charts of the changes where we would begin or stop. And Brian would say, I want to hear this from bar nine to the first ending or something like that, whatever, technically. And we would play Then he'd say, well, well, this time, let me hear a little more bass right here. And that was Ray Pullman, the great Fender bass player that did all those great records with us for so many years. Now, these were three-hour union sessions. And he'd say, that's great, thank you, gentlemen. And that was it. We were finished with the three-hour session in 10 minutes.
4: Here we go. Wouldn't it be nice? Take one. No, one, two, one, two. Oh, don't start like that. <laughs> Hal, here's how I want to do it. Take it, it's like this. Uh, <inaudible> <inaudible> boom. Okay? First beat on the last bar of the intro, you'll go boom, two, three, four, pop out, and then start the song, right? Let's come in with those. Here we go. Come on. Take four.
3: Sometimes the three-hour session ran six hours. So it was all according to Brian. And that's really my remembrances of Pet Sounds. It became a major, major, major entity through the years because some of those songs were just brilliant, Mm. gold records. And it was all Brian, and it was Brian's ear, or ears, and I make no jokes about that. He was a genius. He used to come to my house. He loved the piano in my... Living room, and I had a beautiful old piano, whatever it was. And Brian loved that piano, he would sit at that piano. My little daughter would sit on his knee while he was tapping his foot. So we it became a a major family situation. I mean, the the times they really were changing, I guess. But Brian was growing, and he was writing these more sophisticated things.
4: Yeah. Tom. So, let me hear it right now.
2: Let's do snare one.
4: That's it. Okay, let's let's go. We're all set, aren't we? Here we go. Take two, please.
3: His vocal arrangements were immaculate. And remember that our little wrecking crew, we were working with people like the Letterman and the lows and all these wonderful vocal sounds and the studio background singers that were so wonderful. They were all just super singers. Uh, they could read any, anything, and it was all bottom line. It was whatever we could do quick and make it a hit.
2: And God only knows what I'd be without you should ever leave me The life would still go on. believe me The world could show nothing to me So what good would
1: The illusion was that Dennis Wilson was the drummer in the Beach Boys. Everybody grew up thinking, well, he's the guy sitting behind the drum kit on the album cover, on the on the stage. But sure. you played all those parts, and you know maybe the most famous example of that is uh, you know the the Birds' "Mr. Tambourine Man," the cover of the of the Dylan song that was a huge hit.
4: Tambourine Man, take five. One, two, three, four, five, six.
2: Do that, do that pick up on a snare and do it heavy. You
1: know? Again, the birds presented themselves as a rock group, and yet the only bird who played on that record was Roger McGuinn. The rest of the sounds that were made on this huge hit record were made by the Wrecking Crew. Larry Nichols was playing bass, as I recall, yeah. Were you aware of the controversy, and were you aware that the rest of the group members apparently were very unhappy that the producer said, don't play? The only member of the group was the drummer. who Somebody was
3: Clark, his last name was. Yeah, Gene Clark. And uh, he was a fine drummer, but those people did not have what we we refer to as the chops, or the hands or the experience of being in a studio with a lot of microphones around you, and you had to be so careful of anything you said or did or played or intended, because it had to be perfect. <laughs>
0: talking with drummer Hal Blaine here on Sound Opinions. Hal, we have got to get to your relationship with Sinatra. Or really the Sinatras, because you played on Frank's 1966 uh, classic Strangers in the Night, and then you played on Nancy's hit from that same year These Boots Are Made for Walking. Now there's this famous generational divide between the father and the daughter, their music, the old ways, the new ways. Nancy was the new generation, Frank was the old, Frank famously hated rock and roll, but as you explain that drum beat you gave to Strangers in the Night, it kind of epitomized rock and roll. What about those two songs? What about those two personalities?
3: (laughs) Well, it turned out that in the 1950s, there was a young man by the name of Tommy Sands who replaced Elvis in a film because Elvis was going in the service or something. Colonel Tom was managing this young man from Houston by the name of Tommy Sands. Tommy got the part, and all of a sudden, Nancy we were playing at the uh, Coconut Grove and Nancy came in one night and all of a sudden I became somehow part of the Sinatra family or clan because Nancy fell head over heels in love with Tommy Sands Mm. they got married it was almost like another 10 minute Hollywood marriage as I refer to them (laughs) during that Frank Sinatra time we used to go to Down to the Palm Springs area, we would hang out at Frank's house, at the compound. It was you could hear the vibes that came off of the walls, and the pictures of the stars, etc., etc., and Mr. Sinatra himself. Frank was just an incredible man, and who knew that one day, Nancy calls me and says, "It was so almost like Uncle Hal. I want to be a singer. Will you play the drums for me?" Mm. Will you be my drummer, man? I said, of course, there's no question. And, of course, Lee Hazelwood came along and wrote Boots Were Made For Walking, Billy Strange did the arrangements, and once again, it was another family. Maybe it was fate. I don't know what it was.
2: You keep playing where you shouldn't be playing And you keep thinking that you'll never get burned Ha! Ha!
4: Are you ready, Boots?
1: Start walking. I know you were, did extensive work with Simon and Garfunkel, and I just want to ask you about working with them, and specifically a song like The Boxer. There was a whole other side to your playing, this kind of or, more orchestral feel to a lot of <laughs> those songs. <laughs>
3: Well, Roy Halley was producing and engineering Paul and Artie, as we called them. Paul is a very esoterical kind of a guy, and also Artie is the same way. But Paul wrote, you know, obviously Bridge Over Troubled Water and all these wonderful songs. And the way I worked, they knew my reputation, of course, brought me to New York. And whatever you want to do, it's up to you. And so... When I heard The Boxer, I listened to what I listened to, and I, certain things go through my head. Who knows? Only God knows, I guess. Maybe and Buddy rich. And then I wanted some explosions, major explosions. And Roy Halley was the kind of engineer. Roy would walk around a studio, when it, which was unknown to him, and he would walk around clapping his hands, and he would say, right here, he heard something in his head he'd say, put the drums right here, or put the microphone right here, or whatever. Set it up, we would go in, Paul would sing the song. In this case, I wanted to overdub these amazing drums, and I had two huge tom-toms. And the, the CBS, the Columbia Records building in, in uh, New York, was at the top of the building, and the studio was up there. And to go from the studio... Down to leave the studio it was kind of a crescent downhill walk to the elevator, and somewhere in f- right in front of the elevator doors, Roy Halley heard something. He loved the, the natural echo he was hearing, so he said, "Let's ha- set up Hal right here for my two drums." And of course, I'm wearing headsets. It's Sunday; the building is closed. Nobody's in the building, and we're recording. And now I'm hearing, la da. Boom and I'm smacking these drums <laughs> as hard as I can. Shakes the building. <laughs> La-da-da. Boom. Da 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 Boom. And it, in perfect synchronization, the doors open as I'm just crashing down. Now they don't hear what I'm hearing. And there's a security guard. And as I crashed down, the expression on his face was, it was frozen in fear. And the doors closed, and we never saw him again. (laughs) And this was like a Saturday or Sunday, and the building was closed. So that little story right there was so blown out of proportion. For years, people said, how did you ever get down in that elevator shaft? Didn't your hands get all greasy from the elevator grease and the cables Legends are made that way,
1: I guess. (laughs) Legends are made this way, absolutely. Hal Blaine, uh, you are a
0: legend, and thanks so much for coming on Sound Opinions. A pleasure. Thank you. We'll be back on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX with a review of a new album from Australian singer-songwriter Courtney Barnett. But first, we want to turn it over to you, the listeners at home. What are your favorite Hal Blaine drum moments? And how did you feel learning that some of your favorite bands and artists didn't always play their own music on record? Call us at 888-859-1800. i yeah. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis. My partner is Greg Cott, and that is Courtney Barnett with the first single, Pedestrian at Best, from her first proper album, Sometimes I Sit and Think, and Sometimes I Just Sit. This artist has a way with titles, Greg. (laughs) Courtney Barnett first came to public notice in 2012 when she released her own DIY EP, I've Got a Friend Called Emily Ferris, She followed that up with a second EP, How to Carve a Carrot into a Rose. For both of those records, she borrowed money from her grandmother in order to put those releases out. She began to get much wider notice outside of her native Melbourne, Australia in 2013. She came to America. She played the CMJ Music Festival. Eventually, she put together two of those EPs into a sort of pseudo-first album, now she went into the studio. I love the way this record was made. She spent a year writing songs for Sometimes I Sit and Think and Sometimes I Just Sit, but she didn't share them with the band, her bassist and drummer, until a week before the sessions. She wanted everything to be fresh and immediate and full of energy. You and I were raving about her appearances. as uh, She played eight times at the South by Southwest Music Festival just a couple of weeks ago. Let's play a track from the record. We'll come back and give our reviews. This is Dead Fox by 27-year-old guitarist and vocalist Courtney Barnett on Sound Opinions.
1: Dead Fox from Courtney Barnett and the new album, Sometimes I Sit and Think, and Sometimes I Just Sit. That song is a great illustration of what Courtney Barnett does in her lyrics, Jim. She's standing at the supermarket contemplating the vegetables, and it sort of turns into this musing about the ecology and, you know, what we're putting into our bodies, and it's taking these little tiny, overlooked, everyday details in our lives. Or and organic them vegetables into as a metaphor. Yeah, I love it. Absolutely. You know, the first song in the record, Elevator Operator, I mean, she could have written a short story around these two characters and the great line from the 20-year-old in the song, I'm not suicidal, he tells this woman who's concerned about his health, I'm just idling insignificantly. Yeah. And I think idling insignificantly would have been a great alternative title for this album, because she captures that moment of young adulthood when you're kind of
0: wondering, what's going on? What's going to become of me? Do I want to go out and party, or, or is it <laughs> wrong for me to want to lay in bed and listen to the rain? Right, right. She's the gal
1: standing in the corner in the party observing everyone else. Nobody notices her, but she notices everything that's going on, and that's what's in these songs. The other thing that, that's great about Courtney Barnett She's a fantastic guitar player. This Mm -hmm. cannot be overlooked. She spent a lot of years working in bands on the Australian bar scene and really developed a style of rhythm lead playing that came across really starkly to me, not only at South by Southwest this year, but I saw her play a couple of times last year as well. She's really driving that band. She very often performs in very small formats. There was a three-piece band on the road with her. I think there was four pieces on this particular record. She carries a lot of weight with that guitar. So the combination of her guitar playing, the incisive songwriting, this is one of the strongest collection of songs presented in a very kind of lean but direct style that I've heard in
0: years. I think this is one of the best albums of the year so far. It's a buy-it for me. It's an absolute buy it, Greg, and I'll agree, one of the best albums of the year so far. Rock critics are falling over themselves, falling over, I tell you, to drop names. I've seen everything from from P.J. Harvey to Elvis Costello, both The other, Courtney Love and and Kurt Cobain, I think the uh, Nirvana comparison is a really apt one. You and I were talking at South by Southwest about the 90s influence coming out in the wash, Mm -hmm. right? But I don't hear a lot of groups actually able to pull off what Cobain did with Nirvana. The power of the rock mixed with the intricacy of great pop melodies and the ability to really drop the volume and take the dynamics down – killer guitar parts mm-hmm. and massive choruses in those ways Courtney Barnett has the kind of Kurt Cobain goods she really does and th- those are all hard tricks to pull off you know there's not a bad song on this album you know some of these songs take a, a few listens to really sink in they're growers but the lyrics are wonderful the melodies are strong you know she's just a huge talent I can't wait to see where she goes next so two super enthusiastic buy I tell you little buddy this whole island is bewitched
2: Remember, we were shipwrecked
3: together.
0: As often as possible here on Sound Opinions, we like to take a trip to the desert island and play you a song we can't live without. Greg, seems like we just got off the plane from South by Southwest, but you're going (laughs) off again to the desert island.
1: Yes, I am. And speaking of South by Southwest, I had a conversation with a fellow fan about the Roaches, this great sister group out of New York City. In the late 70s, early 80s, we were talking about how some of the English groups from that era that in that sort of post-punk era were celebrated. You know, the raincoats and the slits. And what were the stateside equivalents of those kind of bands? Maybe a little overlooked today, but really great in their day that made music that really holds up. And I think the Roaches are, are one of them. Sisters Maggie, Terry and Suzy Roach. Terry sang those high vocals, Maggie hit the low notes, Suzzy was in between, a lot of chord shapes. They would fill up the chord meter, you know, Mm. high, low, and middle. They started out singing Christmas carols door-to-door in New York, (laughs) you know. Paul Simon caught notice of them. He had them sing backup vocals on his There Goes Rhyme and Simon record. They kind of kicked around that folk scene, but they had more of an arty spin on it. They weren't just a straight-up folk group. They had this kind of... Uh, These weird touches in their songs, in the way they harmonized, in the lyrics, which were extremely funny at times and extremely poignant at other times. They uh, evolved into the type of group that a lot of people were paying attention to, including one Robert Fripp of King Crimson. Mm -hmm. He loved these guys. He produced their debut album and also their third album, from which I am going to play a track. This is one of their most beautiful songs from that particular album. Fripp also plays on the song. And the way his guitar melds with their voices creates this just absolutely celestial sound. It's called Losing True from their third album, 1982, Keep On Doing, The Roaches on Sound Opinions.
0: Losing True by the Roaches, Greg's Desert Island jukebox pick. Greg, what do we have on the show next week? Next week, Jim, very exciting. We've got an in-studio visit and performance from Slater Kinney. Greg, we have some thanks to say on the way out. Sound Opinions is produced by Robin Lynn, Jason Saldana, Evan Chung, and our intern, Alex Claiborne. On Sound Opinions... Everyone's a critic. So now it's time to hear what you have to say.
2: Strange how a phone call can change your day. Take you away, away from the feeling of being alone. Bless the telephone.
4: New messages. Hi, this is Rick from Morrisville, North Carolina. I was calling regarding this year's South by Southwest. This was the 13th time I've attended, and I found it a bit odd in terms of, uh, it seemed to have the lowest number of big name acts, but it had the highest number of new discoveries. So I think that's what South by Southwest is all about. The best of my new discoveries was a band out of Brooklyn called the Mystery Lights. They were kind of garagey. I picture the seeds pushing too hard, but played with the ferocity of the MC5 or Iggy and the Stooges. By the middle of the second song, I realized they weren't just thrashing around. They were actually good musicians and doing some really interesting interplay, almost like the Almond Brothers' whipping post, which I know that sounds like a crazy cocktail, but it worked, and these guys were playing like their life depended on it, and, and I was really impressed that they had taken whatever their influences were and molded it into something new and unique instead of something derivative or formulaic. I wouldn't call it dance music, but it was a to make you gyrate in some way, shape, or form. out of that show I was drenched in sweat with a big smile on my face and that's usually a pretty good indication you saw something pretty special so color me impressed by the way if these guys ever come to Chicago don't miss them (laughs) they're really something else hi this is Tony South Side of Chicago just was glad to hear that you guys recognized Wolf Atlas at South by Southwest Been a fan of theirs for a little over a year now. Discovered them by accident, going through YouTube one day. They're a great band, they got a great sound. Ellie, 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 Ellie. What can you say about Ellie? She has something else. And uh, yeah, she possesses that 90s run, spirit, keeping it alive and well. And here in the new millennium. Wolf Alice.
5: My name is Rick Lundgren, and the piece of rock and roll memorabilia that I once possessed but no longer do started its life as a nylon windbreaker with the logo of the USS Dwight D. Eisenhower. In 1985, The first airborne rock and roll division consisting of Cheap Trick, Anzus, members of the Doobie Brothers, even still, who I believe organized the tour. They did a show for us aboard the Ike. I was a radio DJ for Armed Forces Radio and Television and had the complete fortune of getting them to sign my jacket in laundry ink, Fast forward about six years, and my brother-in-law borrows the jacket after, shall we say, some liquid refreshment. A couple of weeks later, I ask him if he can bring it back, and arrives with the jacket, which had been freshly laundered. And, yeah, that's a piece of memorabilia. I wish I still had.
4: No more messages.